Well, if you would, open your Bibles back to Acts. We have quite the story to look at today. In fact, we are going to be looking at all of Acts 3, all the way down to Acts 4.4. It's going to be quite the time. So, it is one big narrative. It actually, the narrative here, does not end until basically verse 31. One big section in the book of Acts by Luke. But as we begin, I, I want to just talk a little bit about church history for a moment. Why do we love church history? We can talk about it. Why, why do you guys love church history? Come on, class. This is a fellowship group. We can talk. Come on. Shows us how God's worked in the past. Shows us how God's worked in the past which then results in how we anticipate and see His handiwork as we go forward. Yeah, what else? Yep. Gives us courage, right? When we see others who have stood their ground and had convictions, right? Why do you... Who, who reads church history a lot in here? I, I'm constantly reading multiple volumes in church history at any given time. Tim, why do you read church history? Just like reading the... Speak up a little louder. Um, through reading church history, just like reading narratives in the scripture, you can see the depiction of the life of the believer, and you can see that um, a lot of things that we struggle with, they struggle with as well. And it's <coughs> perfection, it's rejection. And you see people who uh, made foolish decisions and then reap the consequences of that and then repented of that, yeah. and how God then used them sometimes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good word. I love reading church history for all the reasons you said, and I particularly love it because I think that that the Lord knows, because the Bible has so much history in it, how prone we are to wonder, right? How prone we are to drift, how prone we are to struggle, and how regularly we need to see real-life encouragements as a way to encourage our faith, to embolden us, to impassion us for the glory of God. If you're anything like me, you know how easy it is to drift and lose courage and lose conviction. And so reading about men in church history, it gives us, it gives us kind of a spiritual shot in the arm. This is how you can stand because other men have done it by the Spirit and you can stand as well. One of my favorite stories in church history along that line is a story of John Calvin. And I think it's illustrative as we think about the benefit of church history and how that feeds into our inspired church history, which acts as. And I want to tell you a story of John Calvin because it's very appropriate because I think once we're done with this story, your hearts are going to be set aflame with courage and conviction and, and resolve to stand. If you know anything about John Calvin, he ministered in Geneva, Switzerland, and he was the pastor of St. Peter's Cathedral. It's a beautiful church. The church there at St. Peter's um, was basically the hub for who had influence in Geneva. For a long time, the church was Roman Catholic, um, and then the church became Protestant. But the church was oftentimes connected to the councils and the committees and kind of what we'd look at as our government. So he was always trying to navigate how the church could be the church without having the government tell it what to do, what, you know, the, the magistrate there, whatever it may be. Well, one of the most difficult seasons in John Calvin's life was when he was squaring off with a group of men called the Libertines. The Libertines um, were those that thought they could freely exercise their liberties however they wanted with no restraint and still claim they loved Christ. They'd be like our antinomians today. I love Jesus as long as He doesn't put any demands on my life and I can live how I want. That's an antinomian. I live as if the law does not matter. Well, the law at that time in Geneva, in Europe, this time, in every city in Europe, men were allowed legally to keep a mistress. And when Calvin began his ministry in Geneva in 1536 at the age of 27, they were allowed one mistress per man. And men, these libertines, even in the church, would keep mistresses. And they would say, it's our Christian liberty. We're allowed to do it. The government's told us it's okay. And they would do it in the name of Christian freedom. I adapted a lot of this from some work John Piper's done on John Calvin. But there was one well-to-do libertine by the name of Berth Thalier. He was, a, 
he was an interesting guy. He kind of was a ringleader for the Libertines. He would kind of get the guys together and they would champion their cause, you know, find as many people that don't want to obey the scriptures like you and you've got a little, a little group that can campaign for what you want. Well, they wanted to be able to take communion. And Calvin said, you're not taking communion. Well, they ran it all the way up to the court system there, the magistrate there in Geneva, and they were able to get, get it passed where they were allowed to take communion even in their condition. Now, historically, they had not been allowed to take the Lord's Supper, but then they were. Well, Calvin put word out, you're not going to take communion at St. Peter's. But he was tested. And his convictions are tested. And his resolve was tested. Because when he heard that legally they were going to be allowed to do that, he wrote a note to a good friend of his, Pierre Ferret. I'm reading his biography right now. It's phenomenal. You guys should all read it. Pierre Verret. It's excellent. And he wrote this to him. He said, Calvin says this about these libertines wanting to come take communion. He says, I took an oath that I had resolved rather to meet death then profane so shamefully the holy supper of the Lord. My ministry is abandoned if I suffer the authority of the consistory to be trampled upon and extend the Lord's Supper of Christ upon scoffers. I should rather die a hundred times than subject Christ to such foul mockery. Well, within a few short weeks after that, the Libertines showed up at church on a Sunday. But they came with their swords. And they demanded that they should be able to take the Lord's Supper, regardless of how unholy their life was. And as the story goes, Calvin jumps down in front of the Lord's table. <laughs> they have their swords out. Some tales say that he wrapped his arm around the elements. Others say he stood in front of them. And here's what he said to them. And they had their swords out and said, you let us take communion or we're going to kill you. And he said these, this. This is one of my favorite lines in all of church history, these couple paragraphs. This, I mean, this, this uh, couple sentences. He says this. These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. End quote. <laughs> Berthelier and his libertines exited. <laughs> Calvin's courage, his conviction, they left. Now, when you hear something like that, doesn't it just inflame your heart and just say, wow, think about that conviction. Think about that courage. Think about the willingness to stand. It gives you more boldness in your faith, right? It gives you courage in your conversations. You think if men could stand like that for the Lord's table, wow, how much must I live that way? What just happened? Church history... By way of illustration, impassioned your heart to be more courageous and faithful. Well, the book of Acts is inspired church history in the same way. And Acts 3, 1 to 4, 4 is one massive long narrative that has the same goal. Much like the story of Calvin did, this is the story of a guy named Peter and a guy named John and a wonderful miracle that takes place and a a bold sermon where he preaches about sin and calls men to repentance that results in them get putting in prison. But 5,000 people come to Christ at the end of it. That's amazing. So I almost want you to hear this narrative today in this way. Imagine you lived in, let's say, 66 AD. And you met this older, seasoned saint. And he sat you down for some discipleship and you sat down with him and you were just having a meal together. And this seasoned saint said, have you ever heard the story? Have I ever told you about the day that Peter preached that fiery sermon and God saved 5,000 people? And you might say, new believer, no, I haven't. And he'd say, well, let me tell you what happened that day because everything I'm about to tell you is barreling towards that single event where the polarizing nature of the gospel puts Peter and John in prison and God saves 5,000. And were he to tell that story, he would start in Acts 3.1 and go, now Peter and John were going up to the temple. That's where it would begin. So I want you to hear today in that light as if you're being told by a godly man Luke here, the tale of what happened in the early church to give you courage and conviction and resolve to not deviate and to have courage and to live for the glory of God and everything. That's the point of this message. If you leave here and say, wow, that was a really good narrative, cool facts, 
We missed it. If you leave here today and say, I want to be more faithful in my preaching. I don't want to fear man. I want to stand. I want to trust God's power. No matter the result, no matter the outcome, the gospel, it is, it is magnetic. It rejects some and, and some it draws in, but that's okay. I just want to be like the men who stood. That's how you should leave here today. So we're going to go through the whole thing. And by the end of it, I hope that is the result. So let's jump into it. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Imagine you're being told this incredible tale through church history. Inspired church history. Here it is. The stage is set here for Peter and John as they're heading into the temple. All of this is going to end with 5,000 plus conversions. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. That's uh, about three in the afternoon. It's the hour of prayer. They were going over and like still would be the custom to many early Christians, they would go over to the temple, be an opportunity for evangelism, be an opportunity to interact with the Jewish nation, but still, they were Christians, but they would still go pray. They would be a part of uh, gatherings at different times. This gathering turned out much different than many of the Jews showed up that day. Very interesting. But before he even gets into the sermon, notice what happens. Verse 2, And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate at the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Now notice a couple features there of that. Notice, this man's been lame since birth. He had to be carried to where he was to sit down. And this man is at least 40 years or older. Notice chapter 4, verse 22. The narrative keeps going on. Verse, chapter 4, verse 22. For this man was more than 40 years old, of whom the miracle of healing was performed. So you've got this invalid, this cripple, this man who was born without the ability to walk, who would be brought by his family or friends and dropped off in front of the temple. Why the temple? Well, because you'd have all of your significant Jewish people that would have resources oftentimes that would go to pray, they'd go to give, and then these alms would be these... Um, Basically, these penance that they would give. They would give to the poor and give to the needy. And it's kind of their way to say, yeah, I'm doing good before God. So he would, it, was a, it was a prime spot, the location in front of the temple to set up there. And in front of the gate, notice it says back in Acts 3, the gate called Beautiful. That was this massive gate made of Corinthian bronze. And they, they would describe it like it, it would be so massive that it would take 20 soldiers to push this gate open and closed. It was massive. So he would set up there. And he would beg. And think about this. He's some 40 years old. Now this guy didn't go to the temple today have any idea what was about to happen to him. He just showed up to the temple like any other day to beg and do his thing. And you imagine 40 years without using your legs. What would be going on in your legs? No muscle mass. Luke's a doctor. He knows all of this. Luke the physician. He's the writer here. Right? No muscle mass. The mind wouldn't even know how to communicate with the legs to make it work. The ligaments, the joints, the tendons, nothing would be functioning properly. He probably was pretty well shriveled up by this point, hunched over, sitting there. And up walk Peter and John, who have been buddies all the way back since they were fishermen together. And now they're gospel ministers. So, notice, they walk up to this scene, verse 3. When Peter... And John are about to go into the temple. He began to ask to receive alms from them. He wanted an offering for them. He wanted a charitable offering, a sacrifice. Now watch what Peter says. But Peter, along with John, notice the verb here, the language here, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. Uh, fixed his gaze is like this, just imagine this incredible intensity. Just look at me. <laughs> Right now, it's this grab their attention, focus in, I'm fixated on you, I want you fixated on me. And notice that the man's not looking at them. Notice, Peter along with John fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. Verse 5, and he began to give them his attention. Inquiring, right? He was already asking them for something but wasn't looking at them. So it gives you kind of an insight into it. Maybe he was ashamed because of his condition. Maybe he was just so used to going, can I have some money? Can I have this? Can I have that? I mean, 40 years he may have been sitting there. Maybe he was just so worn out and tired, he was hunched over and he was just holding it up. And Peter says, look at me. <laughs> and I wondered, I've been wondering, do you think he looked up and thought, 
these guys are going to have, these guys, big offering today maybe? No one usually tells me to look at them. I'm the defiled of society. Maybe they're going to give me a big payday. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking, but this was a unique time, a unique event. Look at verse 5. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive some from them. So clearly he's thinking, here it is. I'm about to get some more offering. This could be good. Now what happens next, beloved, is amazing. In fact, it's a miracle when you think about his condition. Verse 6. Peter said to him, I do not possess silver or gold. I don't think that's an ultimate statement that Peter's saying, I don't have money, because they would carry around money bags. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a statement of saying, that's not what I'm here for. I have an, another mission. This is not a humanitarian act. I'm not doing the social gospel and social justice. I have a mission. It's a gospel mission. I'm going to show you the power of God in a moment. Peter says, I do not possess silver or gold. But what I do, I give to you. Now, just think about this next line. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. (laughs) Now, immediately, Jesus Christ the Nazarene would have been the human name for Jesus. He would have been known as this. You You say Jesus Christ the Nazarene, here's the association at that time. Oh, that's the guy that claimed he was the Messiah. That's the guy that claimed he was the King of the Jews. Oh, that's the guy that just a couple months ago that they crucified. He's a crazy man. And now people, his followers are saying he's risen from the grave. That guy? He would have been a mockery. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, here's your, here's your command, walk. Now think about it. He just commanded him to do something he's totally incapable of doing. He's never walked. He doesn't have the ability to walk. He doesn't have the capacity to do it. And he says, Walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And then, honestly, it seems before this beggar has time to process, Peter just grabs him. Peter seizes him, reaches down and grabs him by the right hand and raises him up. And look at this. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright. And he began to walk and they entered into the temple. I mean... Hold on. You have this beggar, unable to function, and in a word based on Jesus Christ the Nazarene, he's got full mobility in his legs, he walks up, he's upright, and he just walks into the temple with his new best friends. I mean, why wouldn't he go with Peter and John? That is the ticket right there. I haven't walked in 40 years, and now I'm strolling, and I'm not leaving these guys anywhere. In fact, he ends up in prison with them in a little bit. Think about that. Just look at the language Luke the physician is using. He raised him up and immediately... Now, it would have made sense to me if it said, if someone stammered or someone kind of, you know, went along and tripped along. That would make sense. But to say that the entire structure of his legs and the ability for his mind and his legs to function together and the tendons and the ligaments and the muscles were at absolute full capacity, he leapt up, stood upright, began to walk, And then look what it says, walking and leaping. He's skipping into the temple. Can you imagine? People would have been like, you were, I just gave you some money. Give me my money back. (laughs) You were just outside begging. And now you're leaping and walking. And I've been watching you, some of them, for 20 years sit there maybe. And it says he's not just walking and not just leaping, but look at what he's doing. He's praising God. He's worshiping. That's why I wanted to hone you in on his countenance earlier. Face down, not looking up, not engaged, embarrassed, ashamed. And now he's smiling, heart is full, and praising God wherever he's going. Wow. Talk about an introduction to a sermon. Peter's about to preach. He does not need to introduce his sermon. There's his introduction. Everyone is getting ready to listen. That's amazing. He basically becomes like an athletic child on the playground in a moment. You know, you guys think about oftentimes miracles that are done today, and you just think about a lot of the things that are supposed to be miracles. This was entirely organic. It was absolutely miraculous. It was instantaneous. And everyone there is in a moment is only going to be able to conclude by the time it's done, even the legal system by the time we get to four, this must have been an act of God because this man was incapable, impossible for him to walk. This wasn't some, he had a backache. 
This was a miracle of organic nature from heaven. Notice something very important here. Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Stop there. Luke is honing us in on the purpose of miracles. You need to understand this. You need to understand why this is happening. Because all this is heading towards a sermon and all of this is heading towards all these conversions. The purpose of miracles, if you look at the book of Acts, maybe Acts 9 wasn't an unbeliever, but they were almost exclusively two unbelievers as a miraculous act to do this incredible healing or uh, people who are blind could see, people that couldn't walk could walk, people rising from the dead. And the purpose of a miracle was always the same. They were not humanitarian acts. They had a singular purpose, to awaken people who do not believe in God, that the power of God performed this miracle, and the same power that performed that miracle is going to be the power that's in this message. And so when you see the power of God on display, you better listen to that message. Miracles always point to messages. You don't just stop here. That's why I want to see the whole narrative. If we stop here, whoa, this is amazing, that's great. But we'd miss the point that this miracle was supposed to get to the sermon. And the miracle was to have everybody there who's looking, they should have went like this. Wow, God is among us. This is amazing. Only God could have done that. But because of their pride and their rebellion and how stiff-necked they were, you're going to see in a moment, they don't give credit to God. They try and give credit to Peter and John. Because the Jewish nation in their self-righteousness always want to worship men and exalt men. That's why they wanted Jesus to be a political Messiah. That's why when He rode into Jerusalem, they laid out leaves for Him and said, Come on in. Make us, make us reign with you and you be the political Messiah. And He's like, No, I'm the suffering servant. <laughs> I didn't come to set up political reign. And they killed Him. Because they wanted the glory of men. Notice what happens. Luke gives the audience here that saw all this, a bit of a response from Peter. But watch the interchange. Verse 10. And they were taking note of him, as he being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement and were wondering what happened to him. You think that's fairly benign? Verse 11, I love this. While he was clinging to Peter and John. Of course he's clinging. This guy, he's locked in with them. And the people ran together at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. These people knew what would happen. The audience there, you've got these Jews that have been coming to the temple. And again, beloved, think about it. These Jews that showed up at the temple that day, they just showed up for a normal day of worship. Maybe a little sermonette from a Jewish rabbi. Maybe a little prayer. Then they go on about, give a little bit, go on about their business. God's got other plans for at least 5,000 of these men and some of their families. Watch this. They were, notice it again in verse 11, and all the people ran together. So they knew it was a miracle. They knew it was amazing. They rushed up to Solomon's portico, the east side of the temple, full of amazement. Verse 12, we get a little bit of an insight what was wrong with their heart here. And then his sermon really exposes it. But notice verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people. Saw what? Saw them rush up regarding the miracle in amazement. And he says this to them. This is a rebuke. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And why do, notice this, why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? Do you see what the problem is there? What's the problem in their hearts when they ran up? They wanted to give Peter and John credit about how amazing of a work that they did instead of realizing that only God could accomplish this. They wanted to exalt men. This was their obsession. This is why John 5 says when the Pharisees and Sadducees get together and the religious leaders, they share their glory with one another. They basically get in a, get in a conversation with one another and say, you're great for this and you're great for that and I'm great for this. And then they go up before the people and let's talk about how great they are. They're always looking to exalt men. The purpose of this miracle was to show them that God was among them, that Jesus has risen, that the Messiah is not dead, He's alive, and here's His power on display, and you're going to come and give us credit? You gaze at us like we have the power to do this? You fools. You're scoffing God in doing that. And so now, in response to their arrogance and wanting to give credit to men rather than God, Peter starts in on them. And beloved, this is a serious, serious sermon. 
In fact, I'll give you Peter's outline the way I see it. Peter gives them three indictments. Three indictments for trying to give credit to men rather than God. Now I'm going to preach Peter's sermon the best I can, the way Peter preached his sermon. And imagine the audience there, some snarling, some soft, but they all had just seen something amazing and the purpose of the miracle was to get them to hone in on the message. So here goes Peter. Verse 13. Here's his first point. I've I've called it. You are missing that Jesus was sent from the God of our fathers. And that would be significant because to be a Jew... And to claim that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was your God, Peter's about to say, you're missing the continuity. Jesus was also a servant of God in that He came under Him, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You accept them, but you reject Him. You're missing the full line here. You're missing all that's been written about Him. Notice, verse 13. The God of Abraham... Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant, Jesus. Now that would have just ticked some of them off. Because you go through all through the Gospels, like John 8, when Jesus confronts them, they go, no, we're children of Abraham. And He's saying, if you were legitimate children of Abraham, then you would realize this is Jesus. Because all through the Old Testament, they've been speaking about Him, not by name, but by reference. And then he just tells them, sticks it right to them on the continuity of this. And he says, just like those were servants, notice, Jesus isn't called king here or Messiah. He's called servant, one who came under his father. Those Jews would have been thinking, you're telling me that Jesus served God the same way as our forefathers? That's blasphemy, they would have thought. But then he says this to them, and that Jesus who you won't glorify... God glorified him. God exalted him. God raised him up. A sign of victory. Peter's saying to them, the Jesus you're rejecting that you say, you say you came to the temple to worship God. Good for you. The Jesus that I'm talking about, that you said you you claim to worship the God of the Old Testament, that Jesus, the God you claim to worship, he glorified him. God glorified him. And you're missing it. Foolish, scoffing, unbelieving. Second indictment. That's the first. Not only did you miss that Jesus was sent from the God of our fathers, but two. And remember, Peter's a Jew. He's relating with him. This is me too, but I've, re- I've repented and accepted him. Two, listen to this one. You rejected the Messiah and accepted a known murderer in his place. Now, you want to stick it in the craw of the Jews. You just go ahead and tell them that whole scene with Barabbas and Jesus when they asked for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be executed to tell them that they were wrong in that. Because think about what happened in that scene. A known brutal murderer was released back into society with their countrymen and an innocent righteous one was executed if Peter's right here. This would have been right in their face. Notice what he says to them. Keep reading there in the rest of 13. Jesus... The one, notice the verbs here, you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And he says it again, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Holy and righteous there, those are terms of innocence. Disowned, here's here's how you could translate that. They refuse to acknowledge who someone is. Can you imagine what they're saying? He's saying to them, the holy righteous one, the one that was innocent, you looked up at your options, known murderer that slaughtered people, or at least one person that was known and it was documented, one that we can't make a case against and no one can prove anything against him, and when the crowds are cheering, you say, let the murderer go and kill the innocent. And so he reminds them, the righteous and holy one, the innocent, you asked a murderer to be let go instead of him. You let your fellow countrymen have a murderer be released back in society before you would accept Jesus' message. Wow. It must have crushed some of them. Some of them that we'll see get saved in a bit. This must have been the beginnings of the Spirit of God doing some work, right? Do you imagine sitting there, probably some of them in that crowd, and starting, if the Spirit of God started working their heart, started realizing, I was cheering to kill him and let Barabbas go. Are you telling me that I'm responsible for killing the innocent one, the God-man, and at the same time I let a murderer go back into society? 
that my heart was that depraved and that wicked that I would choose that much wickedness over that much righteousness, that I choose the wicked one over the righteous one? Wow. You know, I was thinking about that. Before you say those wicked Jews, <laughs> you'd have been standing there as well. You would have. If you believe your Bible, what it says about the human heart, you'd have been there too. You know why? Because before you came to Christ, every time you chose wickedness over Christ, you chose the same thing. I would rather have my wickedness than give the Son honor. Same action. Same heart issue. We all would have done it. So I've told you before, Martin Luther says we all carry the nails in our pockets. We read about the Jews and their unbelief. They lived in a time where mobs would come around and come together and they could have this, this flashbang mob to accomplish something. Now, don't think you wouldn't have been involved in that as an unbeliever. You would have. I would have. You know what's also interesting about this, just by way of thinking? What are you starting to notice about apostolic preaching? Is it soft? Sugar-coated? Fluffy? No. Maybe, you know, a little sermonette that kind of encourages people and pats them on the head and tells them they had a really good week and leaves them with 12 practical principles. What are you noticing about apostolic preaching? It's convicting. Preach about God. Preach about the Old Testament. Preach about sin. We're going to see preach about repentance. Hold unbelievers to acknowledge their rebellion and their wickedness. Take them to the point where they see they have no hope outside of fleeing to Christ. <coughs> Churches today, beloved, so often preach a sermon that can't offend anyone. If everyone can accept your sermon, it's not a New Testament sermon. Real preaching offends some and softens some. Peter's not saying, ooh, let me see how I can nuance it and contextualize and find a little common ground with the Jew to let them know, you know, ah. No, he just said, you executed him, you killed him, you chose a murderer, you're responsible, how do you feel? <laughs> it gets worse for them. The guilt just doesn't stop. This is probably the most indicting line. Third, third indictment. You put to death the prince of life. You put to death the prince of life. You killed the life giver. Let that think it sink in for a second. Look at verse 15. But you put to death the prince of life. There's three options for that word there for prince. One is, could be a ruler or a prince. That'd be true of Jesus, right? Second option would be that it's one who is the first among many. The first one, the preeminent one. That'd be true of Jesus. But I think the best translation is probably the third option of that word for prince. And it is this. The one who originates something. The founder of something. The author of something. The one from which everything originates. That's your best translation. So now read it like this. You put to death the one who originated life itself. Think of the irony. The one who brings life, the author of life, you just put him to death. You didn't just kill anyone. You just killed the one who originated life in himself. He is the, the premier author of life itself. You killed the author of life. Not only did you step on life itself, but you stepped on the one who brings very life from his body and from his blood. Wow. Colossians 1.16. What type of life are we talking about? Colossians 1.16. All things come from him and through him. So there's physical life that they stepped on and they killed. And spiritual life, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. So he's telling them, you, in your execution of Jesus, you foolish Jews that rejected him, you killed the author of life, the very one who gives spiritual life and upholds physical life, and you executed him to justify your own agenda. You killed the life giver. But God didn't step off the throne. I love this. This little line here. by God didn't get off the throne. He's still sovereign. He's still on the throne. Even though they killed him, Luke wanted them to know, and excuse me, Peter wanted them to know, God didn't step off the throne. Watch this. Look at what it says next. Look at the, uh, the end of verse 15. The one whom God raised from the dead, a fact which we are witnesses. Then, look at 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man from who you see and know. And the faith which comes from him has given his perfect health in the presence of you all. Think about it. He just pointed to him. The one that you're rejecting, the Messiah, the one you just killed the Prince of Life and you chose a murderer over him. You see this guy right here that's walking and leaping and praising God? 
Jesus was the one that did that. He's risen from the grave. Here's your illustration and you still sit in your unbelief. And when it says there on the basis of faith, this is not that man's faith. This is the faith of the apostles. And on the basis of the faith in his name, these, these apostles, Peter and John, through, through being called apostles, they were able to perform this on behalf of God. And then look at 18. God's not off the throne. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He fulfilled. So imagine you're a Jew. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, I know the Old Testament. I know there was a promised one. You're telling me I killed the Prince of Life. <laughs> you're telling me I executed. You're telling me this guy next to you is a demonstration that the risen Lord Jesus is on the throne. You're telling me that God planned this all along and I've been missing it. For those that were going to get saved, there was probably weeping. There was probably brokenness. There was some serious contrition taking place. This is soul-penetrating stuff. And then look at Peter change his tone a bit in, in 17. This is really unique. Imagine Peter, it'd be like, what he's about to do is, it'd be like me preaching to you like this, and then I'd say, now listen, I'm one of you. I get it. I know how you got here. So there's this, the, 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 the grammar in this even kind of pulls them in and says, men, I'm going to call you to task again in a moment. But notice he says, brethren, a fellow Jew. Guys, I've been there. I rejected him too. But when I saw him and I believed, I came to know him and my life was transformed. 17, and now brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Ignorance, don't think ignorance like I didn't know. Think I didn't realize the significance. It's like what Jesus said on the cross, right? Forgive them, Father, what? Well, they knew what they were doing. They were killing Him. What He was saying is they don't realize that they're killing the Son of God. They don't realize that their actions are going to lead them to hell. What He's saying to them is, Brethren, I know you may not have thought about that you killed the author of life. I know you may not have thought about that you chose a murderer over the innocent. I know you may not have thought about that you've been rejecting the God, uh, Jesus, the one that your Father, our Father, God, sent. I get that you might not have seen the significance of that, but see it now. Because your rulers rejected it, and if you rejected it, you will pay for your sin as well. Now look at what Peter says. After all that, in classic apostolic preaching, verse 19, Therefore, repent. Repent of what? Repent and return. Turn from your sin. Repent of what? Your sin, your rebellion, your unbelief, killing the author of life, the release of a murderer instead of freeing Jesus, for rejecting God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And do it for what purpose? Notice, the end of 19. So that your sins will be wiped away. You know what that language is like? Ink on a page that didn't, didn't quite didn't sink in. You know, just to wipe it off, to be able to pull it off and have a clean say. Brothers, brethren, repent so your sins can be forgiven. And then notice, he gives Old Testament imagery brought in the New Testament speaking about the future kingdom. In order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Verse 20. And that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive. Look at this. Until the period of restoration of all things. What's going on there? Stop. Two words I want you to think about. Restoration and refreshing. Those are Old Testament terminology to talk about what will happen when a mass number of Jews repents. There's going to be a massive number of Jews saved and repented. And when they do, it's going to usher in the second coming. And it's going to usher in the millennium and the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about the kingdom that is to come. He's saying, guys, start repenting because you know from the Old Testament, from Isaiah and Jeremiah, God promised when the nation and who, are, who God's calling repent, it triggers God to return, Jesus, to set up the new Jerusalem, to set up the new heavens and the new earth. And notice, everything else now comes and really doubles down on that. Because can you have, can you be in the kingdom if you don't believe in the king? Can you have a kingdom without the king? Well, the Jews need to be repenting so there can be restoration and refreshment so the king can come back and set up his kingdom. Everything now just falls off the page. Think of that banner. King and kingdom language. Everything else speaks to that. Watch this. Keep going here. 21. About which God spoke, the king and the kingdom, the refreshing and the restoration, by the mouth of his prophets from ancient time. Verse 22. Moses said it. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the brethren, to him you shall give heed to everything that he said to you. 
That's uh, from Deuteronomy 18.15. It's a reference to the promised Messiah that would come. They should have known that. They had their Old Testament, didn't they? They had Deuteronomy. They had the Pentateuch. He's telling them, you've read over this a hundred times and you're missing the one who was the fulfillment of that. And then, he quotes Deuteronomy 18.19. Look at verse 23. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed among the people. Guys, think about that again. Read it again. Everyone who does not heed what the prophet said, that Jesus would come and now he's here, you will be decimated. He's not leaving them off the hook. And then, not only Moses spoke of the coming Messiah that you're rejecting, but notice Samuel, verse 24, and likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. Why is Samuel significant in this discussion? I'll just wake you guys up. Why is Samuel significant in this discussion? Think about it. Why would a pulling in Samuel be such a rebuke? What was Samuel's role, class? Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Who was he ministering to? Saul? David. And what line did Jesus come from? The Davidic line. And Samuel made promises that from Jesus' line would come the Messiah. And then even after David, there'd be Solomon and Jesus would come from that line. In fact, just reference Isaiah 11.1, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesus was coming through the line. So he's saying, you're rejecting Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and even Samuel because he spoke of this and you're still rejecting him. You need to repent. And then verse 25. It is not you who are the sons of the prophets and the covenant of which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a reference to Genesis 12.3 and an explicit reference to Genesis 12.18. What's he saying? The promised seed from Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 22, the one that would crush the serpent, Jesus... You're even stepping on the seed. And then, verse 26. For you first God raised up His servant. Did you hear that? Read it again. For you first. What love? All their rejection. All their abandonment. All their rebellion. And He reminds them of the promise from Acts 1.8 and Luke 24.47. The Jews will get an opportunity to repent first. What a compassionate God. Think about that. Oh, I'm too sinful. God won't accept me. Really? The Jews stepped on the author of life, executed him, and chose a murderer for him. You're not beyond saving. (laughs) This is the mercy and compassion of God. You know what we would have done to the Jews? We would have just hammered them and given them no opportunity, not God. You first, Jews. It's your chance. God raised up the servant so He could bless you. And then how do you be blessed? Repentance. Look at how it ends in 26. By turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's what, what's that mean? You need to own your wickedness. What you were, what you did, and why you need to be blessed by the Messiah. Now, terrible chapter break in Acts 4, 1-4. to Erase the chapter break, and let's just keep reading. Okay? As they were speaking to the people. Okay? Same context. Look at what happened. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Mobs come up to Peter and John and this cripple that had, been, that had been healed. And look what it says about them. They were greatly disturbed. Now, when you hear greatly disturbed, doesn't that sound kind of like, oh yeah, they're a little disturbed, they were upset, greatly disturbed, anxious, a little worked up. Let me give you a stronger translation. Here's what you could say. They were angry and burdened. Disturbed is, is the idea of being burdened and upset as a result of what you've just heard. So here's what you could say. A group rushes up because they're angry, they're hostile, they hate the message, they want to shut them up, they want to put the guy that got, got the miracle done him away, they want to shut up Peter and, and John. And so they rush up to grab them. Why? Their conscience was screaming at them because they knew it was true. They knew it was right. They knew they were rejecting, but they would not repent. That's one group. So I want you to realize the magnetic effect of the gospel. One group is angry. I'm going to make an implication about that at the end to encourage you. One group in faithful preaching wants to shut them up. 
Verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. And you'd think if the story ended there, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> But again, we'll just quote the doctor. Thank God for the buts in the Bible. But many. Verse 4. Many of who? Many who just sat through that sermon, who saw the miracle. But many of those who had heard the message believed. They softened. And the number of them came to be about 5,000 men. Beloved, they were only counting the men. There was women probably there and children also saved. 5,000 plus came to Christ. Remember how we started today? Hey, did I ever tell you the story about the time 5,000 souls were saved? <laughs> Well, that's how it happened. 5,000 plus souls were added to the kingdom. Is that incredible? So what are some, what are some inspired implications from inspired church history we could grab from that? I've just got one big one that I just want to draw out. This will encourage you in your life. Well, we could, let's just back up. We could say... True preaching is about God. It starts with God, about sin, the need for Christ, the need for repentance. We could talk about the courage of Peter, right? How encouraging it is to see him stand. We could rejoice in the fact that God does save. Those Jews didn't arrive there that day and going, Save me, Lord. I can't wait to know Jesus who I just executed. And they just wandered in, coming to do their normal thing, and God marvelously saved them. But I want to just take away one implication and spend the next few minutes on it. Here's what we can draw from this. This is what would encourage the early church. True preaching of the gospel's magnetic. It's always magnetic. Just look back at it again. Verse 2. Some were burdened and angry. They were disturbed. Their conscience was screaming at them. And some, in verse 4, softened their heart and repented and believed and they were saved. God saved them. Spurgeon once said this, and you know this quote, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. Beloved, if you go and you're preaching the gospel to people and you're being faithful with the message and everyone still likes you, you're not being faithful. <laughs> true, effective evangelism, true, effective preaching, true love when you bring the word is going to have two responses. Softening, and hardening. Can you imagine what it means about these churches that do all they can to just make sure they keep everybody in the building and just do everything they can to not offend anybody? How is that true preaching? It's magnetic. It's polarizing. And so for you, if you go on your campuses, at your workplace, in your families, I know some of you have families that are very hostile, and you think, am I messing up? They don't like me. If they're offended at the message... It's because they're burdened. There's that word group. They're angry in their conscience. It's screaming at them. John 16, 8, the Spirit's convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and they will not soften. They're stubborn. Well, guess what? If they're not going to soften to Christ, they're going to hate the message and hate the messenger. Just realize that if you're faithful to Christ, you're going to have a group of people that love you. You are the one that shared the gospel with me. Thank you. And you're going to have people that go... I don't like you at all. You've changed. You're in a cult. Get away from me. Why are you always talking about him? They're burdened. They're angry. Why? They're sinned. They will not give it up. They arrested them and they're going to try and get them killed. This happens everywhere in Acts. You know what I do when people that I'm giving truth to get angry with me? I always have this Spurgeon quote in my mind, another Spurgeon quote. It's really helpful for me. As a pastor, you speak truth to lots of people. Some people soften. It's wonderful. You rejoice. The line can get pretty long sometimes and people upset with you. And it can be discouraging. I always remember this Spurgeon quote. It's kind of my own little way to counsel myself. <laughs> Spurgeon says this, Beloved, if you follow God fully, your character will never be long tarnished. So in the end, God will vindicate you. You can trust that. Then he says this, Do not try to answer those who slander you. If a mule kicks you, would you kick the mule back? <laughs> if a fool brings a charge against you, do you reply to him? Translation, when you get kicked by a mule, consider the source. <laughs> I'm not saying inherently like I'm being derogatory about a mule. I'm just saying if they're angry at me because I was faithful with the message, it's their conscience and their burden and they're upset and I can trust the Lord with that and He'll vindicate it in the end. 
One more implication of this. No one knew that day except God what he was going to do, right? Did anybody know? So the early church would have just read the story. That's why I want to do the whole narrative with you. No one would have known that day God was going to save 5,000 but God. Sometimes in our ministry, and I think the early church would have been tempted to this, we tend to guess, don't we? Well, I'll minister to that person, and I'll not minister to that person, and, you know, I'll, 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 I'll. instead of just saying, how do I be a faithful messenger with what God's given me, and I'll trust Him to do the work and the results? I struggled with this some years ago. I remember I was meeting, I've told some of you this story, I was meeting with two guys. I told you this sometime back, but it's illustrative here, I think. Both of them had this in common. They both wanted to meet and talk about truth. One guy was real mopey and whiny about it, and it was just like, ah, oh, like every meeting, it's like, okay, he wants to listen, but man, this is so exhausting. Another guy, everything I said, he seemed to hang on every word. And I went to Todd, and I said, Todd, I'm just struggling meeting with this one guy, but this other guy's great. And he said, Darren, let me just give you a principle that I've learned over the years. Don't guess. He said this to me. I wrote it down. Sometimes God will take a log of wet wood and light it on fire. And other times, a flame burning bright will fizzle out. Don't guess. Just be faithful. You know, I think that would have been in the early church's mind when they would have went. Imagine persecution was going to be setting in. Difficulty. Stephen's about to get killed. Paul's going to get imprisoned. There would have been discouragement. They would have gone back to chapter 3, 1 to 4, 4 and said, Man, God moved, God acted, Peter was faithful, God started saving people, other people got angry and hostile. God takes care of that. My job is to be faithful. I don't need to guess, I just need to do the work. Now, I don't mean if people are angry and hard-hearted, you just keep trying to blister them. I'm just saying, we don't know what God's going to do, so we just need to be faithful messengers. This is inspired church history to teach us that. Next time, our time's gone. We're going to see him get out of prison, and see some amazing things happen for the early church. But here's what I want you to leave with today. Just that, beloved. I want you to leave with the idea that I need to be faithful. God can move when He wants. Don't minimize and shrink back from declaring the full counsel of God. Don't be, don't be enchanted by ministries that advertise their numbers but preach anemic, shallow messages. Love good preaching, love hard preaching, trust God to do the results, be faithful to the message, and if people don't like you because of the message, praise the Lord, you're faithful. Right? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for inspired church history. We are so grateful. We study Calvin and we love it. We study Beza, we study Luther, we study Edwards, we study the Puritans. But when you inspire accounts, Lord, we want to pay particular attention. The early church would have regularly went back and read through this to see your power on display, to see the boldness of Peter, to see his courage and his conviction, to see this man transformed. The Jews would have went back and seen how hard-hearted the nation was. No doubt you probably saved countless Jews by believers, taking them back to Acts 3 and showing them the exact account of what they were responsible for. Lord, and to think you've already saved 2,000 plus, now you just saved 5,000 more. You are exploding the gospel. It cannot be stopped. That would have encouraged this church to think nothing can thwart your promise. Not even the gates of hell can come against your promises. Let us be encouraged and impassioned and emboldened to be faithful and let accounts like this rivet our hearts to keep us from fear of man that shrinks back. But just let us be faithful. And if people end up burdened and angry and hostile and yet we've been faithful... Let us rejoice. And when people soften, let us give you the credit and keep us from guessing because it is our tendency. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed.